Well, you, this is a new phrase, something really new uh, for you guys to, to learn. I'm gave, giving you inside look here. Uh, did you know that a picture is worth a thousand words? Like, oh, you, uh, I thought that would get your money's worth for coming here this morning. But uh, we have, well, we all know that phrase. A picture is worth a thousand words. And recently, there's been this thing that you can spend just hours upon hours on the internet looking at, and it's something called memes. And you probably heard that, or at least you've probably seen one if you're on Facebook or social media in some way. But memes are usually like some sort of picture. Uh, and there's like some text around it that uh, describe the picture, but usually this picture kind of accurately um, portrays some sort of feeling we might have or some sort of opinion. And so one of them that circulated uh, after President Biden's inauguration was a Bernie Sanders. Anybody know where I'm going with this? This picture of him sitting around. I wish I had a bigger screen, but here is what uh, this looked like. Um, Bernie Sanders sitting there at inauguration day. They're all, you know, uh, six feet apart, and he's masked up. And he's got, I'm sorry, you probably can't see it, but he's got these little mittens on. And he's kind of sitting there, you know, with his arms crossed, just hanging out, doing his thing. And so people have created memes about this. And this one, you know, what this says is, this could have been an email. You know, when you're sitting in a meeting that's like an hour long, and you're like, this could have been an email. Why are we all sitting around like this? And so it's like it. It captures that feeling of somebody sitting in a meeting and he's just sitting there. This could have been an email. What are we doing here? And there's a one I was, was uh, discovered recently. My wife found it on one of the Woodstock Facebook pages. Uh, I couldn't find the exact copy of it, but I found other ones who were just like it. And um, you've probably seen if you've gone around Woodstock, there's some people who have these little yard signs that say worst roads in McHenry County. Anybody, anybody seen those? I don't. Apparently, this is a thing that a lot of people feel. Uh, so there's a lot of people in different states that have uh, circulated memes about this. And so you've all seen Titanic, I'm sure. And there's that scene at the end uh, or near the end where you know Rose is on that board and Jack is in the water and he's dying. And so some people have like uh, taken that and they put them in a pothole. Um, so you've got uh, you know Jack just hanging on there, and the little the meme was on the top. It said uh, Titanic Woodstock edition. Of, like people just you know, sitting in this pothole uh, and just trying to climb out. I thought about making a meme out of some of uh, my kids' behaviors, but I thought maybe that wasn't a good idea. Um, but if you, we've also are all familiar with uh, adopt a dog commercials. And, you know, that could just be text. The whole point of these memes is an image with words is a lot more powerful than just the words. You know, worst roads in McHenry County. Like, none of us drive by that and laugh like we did at this meme. But there's something about the image that, like, perfectly captures a feeling or the opinion of what's going on there. And there's also these commercials, Adopt the Dog. And if it was just some text that said, hey, there's a lot of dogs that don't have homes, uh, please adopt one, we'd be like, Okay, not really interested. But what they do is they have you know this really like sad music in the background, uh, and then they have all these little dogs. You know the look dogs make that sad look. It's just like this, you know, they're doing that little look up at you with their eyes, and you're like, how can I? And they're like, all these dogs need homes. Please adopt one. And that like pulls us in. So that image with the words of what they want you to do, uh, there's something powerful about that. More powerful than just using words. And as in, we've been going through the Gospel according to Luke for the past um, month or two. We had started it earlier, but we picked it back up. And we've been going through the middle chapters, chapters 9 through 19. And in these chapters, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. This is probably 
uh, takes place over a course of a week or two. It take a, a little less than a week to just walk there straight. And he's with all these other Jewish people who are going to Jerusalem for Passover, one of the three feasts that people would pilgrimage to Jerusalem for to celebrate together. And so Jesus is going with all these people, going up to Jerusalem. And as he goes along, he's teaching people along the way. And his main teaching topic is God's kingdom. What, what is God's kingdom like and what is a proper response? And basically the, the gist of his message is uh, God's kingdom is coming. Turn to God before it's too late. There's this urgency, like you need to get right with God. You need to make a decision here about God's kingdom before it's too late because this offer is not going to be open forever. We might think, well, okay, God's kingdom, you know, we don't really usually think about kingdoms, maybe the United Kingdom and the Queen and the King, um, but we're a democracy, so we don't think in terms of kingdom, and it might be like, well, what does that mean that God's kingdom is coming? And you could put it very simply, taken from the Lord's Prayer, it's when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, that heaven is the place where God's will is done, and when God's kingdom comes to earth, it means God's will, his reign, his rule, his values uh, the behaviors he wants to see, the attitudes he wants to see, comes from heaven onto earth. And Jesus, he doesn't just use words. He doesn't just keep saying, God's kingdom's coming. God's kingdom is coming. But he uses images, pictures with it, kind of like we were talking about the power of words with images. And he, they're called parables. And he uses these images to talk about what is God's kingdom like? What's it going to be like when God's kingdom comes? And what's it going to look like when it comes and people find that they didn't make a decision, so they're on the outside looking in rather than being a part of it. And so Jesus tells these stories. What does it look like, sound like, and feel like for God to be king? And so you might ask, well, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he walking around talking about God's kingdom? Well, he tells us his mission a couple chapters later in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. He said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. I've come to seek and to save the lost. That's his stated uh, mission. And we'll get into more of what that means in a bit. And then the, the chapter we're looking at today, chapter 15, is this motivation for why he's on that mission. To seek and save the lost, that's my mission. Why am I on that mission? Luke 15 tells us. And it's why does he seek and save the lost. And it, I'm going to give you a question that really captures the why of why he's doing what he's doing. And it's a little long, so you don't you're going to get every part. Maybe just pick a shortened version of this, but the question is, how does God respond? You could, the short version would be, how does God respond when you come to him sinful? How do, but the longer version is, how does God respond when you come to him poor, dirty, guilty, ashamed, broken, sinful, with nothing to offer but an apology? What does God, how does he respond to you in that moment? And that's, this is like one of the top, I don't know, one of the top three questions in life that we need to answer is how does God respond to us when we come to him broken, made a mess of our lives, uh, just everything's gone wrong, we've made one bad decision after another, and we come to him with nothing but an apology. How does God respond to us in that moment? What is he like? And your answer to this has a huge influence in your relationship with God. Maybe you've already said, like, well, I know he forgives me. But maybe in that moment when you've actually done something wrong, you don't really feel that he's going to forgive you. And so our sense of how does God respond when we come to him like that is hugely influential on our relationship with God. And in Luke 15, it's really, well, how would Jesus answer that question? How would Jesus answer that question we just uh, talked about? And so we get the, the setting. We read part of the story already. Chapter 15, verse 1. 
Uh, we find out that there's, in verses 1 and 2, we find out that there's these two groups that are uh, in this story. And the one group is, are those who are drawing near to Jesus, and the other group is people who don't like who's drawing near to Jesus. So there's people that are hanging around with Jesus, and there's people looking at who's hanging out with Jesus, and they don't like the kind of people that Jesus is hanging around with. And, but Jesus is at the center of this whole thing, that people are drawing near to him, and then people are critical of what he's doing, who he's hanging around with. And they say uh, to each other, the people that are unhappy, they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And they ask, well, why does that bother them so much? Like, why are they, why are they getting their bundies in an undle? I don't know if anyone knows that term. That's what my parents said. Why are they getting all worked up about this? Why are they so upset? Well, tax collectors uh, were considered traitors because... Uh, the Roman Empire had taken over the land of Israel, and then they're taxing the people. And a tax collector was a Jewish person who decided, I'm going to work for the Roman government as a tax collector. And so they're basically making money off of their own people. Taking, they've sided with the enemy, and now they're taking money, making money off of their own people. And then sinners, uh, they call them, are people who aren't keeping the commands. They're irreligious. They're disobedient, they're breaking God's laws, and good law keepers don't hang out with bad law breakers, and so that's their stance. If you're a good person, if you're a good law keeper, you shouldn't be hanging out with all these bad law breakers. And this isn't the first time they've grumbled about this. It happened back in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. And so Jesus, in response, he tells three parables about things that are lost and that are found, and he talks gives these parables because he's saying, this is why I'm receiving these sinners, these people that have messed up their lives, and why I'm eating with them. This is why I'm hanging around with them. And we heard the first two parables. The first is about the lost sheep. The lost the sheep gets lost. The shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one. When he finds it, he rejoices and says to people, rejoice with me. Come celebrate with me that I found the sheep that I had lost. And the second story was about the coin. Uh, it was a drachma. It was worth finding. You might know, be thinking, what's the big deal? It's like a penny. But their coins were worth more. Some of their coins were worth a lot more than our coins. So it was worth finding. And so this woman looks around. It's lost. And then she finds it. And then she tells people, rejoice with me. I found the, the coin that was missing. And so why is Jesus hanging around these sinners? Uh, verses 7 and 10, uh, at the end of those two stories, Jesus says, just so. Just like these people had something that was lost, and then they found it. And they said, rejoice with me. So that's the same thing that's happening in heaven. This is like, in heaven, when a sinner turns to God, when a sinner repents, when they go from lost to found, God is overjoyed. And there's this party in heaven that is like, yes, someone went from lost to found, that they turned from their ways and they turned back to me. And the focus that we're going to have on this morning is the third story about the lost, younger, uh, the two about a family, a father uh, and his two sons. And often this story is called, probably even in your Bibles, it's called the, the parable of the prodigal son. And really, but verse 1 tells us, uh, and Jesus said, there's a man who had two sons. And so this is about a father, a man, that has two sons. It's about three people and about their, the son's relationship with their father. And so the first part of the story focuses on the younger son, uh, starting in verse uh, 12. And so we're told this. This man has two sons. In verse 12 it says this. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, 
Give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And so for a son to say to his father, I'd like my inheritance, it's super disrespectful because your inheritance is something you get when your dad dies. And so in a way, the son is saying, I can't wait till you're dead. I just like it now. Do I get the inheritance now? And the father, you know, um, crazily agrees to it. And what would have happened here is the older son would have gotten a double portion in comparison to the younger son. And so he splits up the property and he gives his younger son his, his share of the property. And then he has it. And this would have brought total shame on the father, on the family, the neighborhood would have been talking about it. There would have been this gasp. And maybe even a gasp as he told this story. <gasps> what? How could the son say that to his father? How could he basically say, I wish you were dead. I just want your stuff so I can do what I want with it. Like it's super disrespectful. In verses 13 through 16, tell us what happens after that. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him <coughs> anything. And so the reason this, the, the word prodigal is an old word, it means reckless or it means extravagant. And so we're told that he spends everything he has on reckless living, on prodigal living, on extravagant living. He just takes his money, he takes his dad's stuff, and then he goes and he spends it, he wastes it. And we're told that he ends up poor. He's doing a job he's ashamed to do uh, because he's feeding pigs, which for a Jewish person in the Old Testament law, you weren't supposed to be associated with pigs because they are unclean to them. And so he gets a job that he wouldn't want to do, that he'd be ashamed to do. And then he's hungry. And he says, man, I could really go for some of that pig food. Uh, I'm sure, hoping none of you have been in that situation where you're watching the pigs eat and you're saying, I could really go for some of that food that they're chewing up. Basically, he hits bottom. And so, for yourself, have you ever been there? Have you ever hit bottom? Or do you feel like you're on the way there? Like, I'm on the path this guy's on. Maybe you haven't hit the bottom of it yet, but I feel like I'm on my way there. In verse 17, it says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And so he comes to himself. He comes to his senses. He's like, Man, my dad's hired servants, they have it pretty good. Certainly way better than I have it here. And then he makes a plan. Verses 18 and 19. He says, I will arise and go to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I'm unworthy to be your son. Just make me a hired servant, because they've got it better than I've got it here in this situation. In verses 22 through 24, we see the father's response to the younger son's return. And so verse, starting in verse um, 20. And he arose... And came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And so this is, this welcome that he receives from his father is just a welcome of lavish affection. And this would not be a, a default, typical response of a Middle Eastern father to his child who has dishonored him and 
you know, made him look like a fool in front of all his relatives and in front of all the people in town. And But he runs out to him and welcomes him with this lavish affection before he can even say anything. And then the son, he, he had this... You know, he had this speech rehearsed that we heard, and he gets part of it out, verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, no longer worthy to be called your son. And then he admits, like, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against God, I've sinned against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he doesn't even get the part out where he says, just treat me as a hired servant. His dad like, interrupts him. Uh, interrupts him and says to him, but the father, you know, that little contrast there, uh, verse 22, but, I'm no longer worthy to call your son, verse 22, but, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. Why? For this, my son was dead, as alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate And so the father, he runs out to him, embraces him with lavish affection, and then he gets his partial speech out, and it's like the dad doesn't even hear it. He says, bring the best robe. You know, one of our our family robes maybe has our family colors. He's he's longing to eat for pig food, so you can assume his clothes are in bad shape. You can assume his feet are in bad shape. And he says, like, bring bring the family robe and put the the family ring on him again, the ring that a a son would hold that represents his place in the family. And get some shoes on his feet. Uh, He's maybe barefoot, bloody, dirty. Get some shoes on his feet. And he says, let, and throw a party. Like, we call everyone, come, like we've heard in the other stories, rejoice with me. Come together, because my son, who was lost, is now found. I thought he was dead, and now he's alive. And he says, kill the fattened calf. And we might be like, I, you know, I don't have a fattened calf you know, around my house that I can just kill. Um, so that's a kind of a weird thing for us to think of. But uh, you would, meat was rarely eaten at meals uh, in the first century, at least for Jewish people, because, uh, I mean, it's a way more rare. It's harder to keep. You don't have refrigerators. And so we're used to eating meat for almost every meal. Uh, but they would uh, have this calf that would be fattening up and raising up and preparing for special occasions for the special holy days in the, in the calendar of the, the Jewish people. And the father is basically saying, this occasion is so important. It's you know, almost on level with some of the holy days, just that my son is back, is that let's kill the fat calf that we're preparing for those special days, and let's celebrate, get all the neighbors together, and let's have a big party that my son is back. And so the situation, stepping out of the, the parable, stepping out of the story, Jesus is hanging around younger sons. People who have made a mess of their lives, who are broken, despised, who perhaps shamed their parents, maybe have even been kicked out of their families. And they've ruined their lives one bad choice after another. And I just want to ask, can you relate? Have you ever been in that place where you felt like, man, I've got to do a place I never wanted to be. I made one bad choice after another. Have you been the younger son? Or are you the younger son now? Just feeling like, I'm not, I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving of anything. I'm not worthy to be called a son. We run from God. We chase things of the world. It leaves us empty. And we hit bottom. And we just say, God would never take me. I don't deserve anything. I'm worthless. I'm a piece of garbage. How could God ever love someone like me? Which brings us back to the question, how does God respond? When you come to him poor, dirty, guilty, 
ashamed, broken, and sinful with nothing in your hands but an apology? How does he respond? And the image we're given here by the Father is the Son, this is his life. Uh, poor, dirty, guilty, ashamed, broken, sinful. But then we're told, but, while he's still a long way off, his Father sees him, and his heart is filled with compassion, and he runs out to him and embraces him and kisses him. He just pours this affection on him and pours his love on the Son who had gone. And he says, I'm going to restore his sonship. I want to celebrate with people. He doesn't even focus on what his son has done. Like, yeah, the nerve you have to come back around here. He doesn't, he doesn't even talk about it. Just comes and embraces him. And I wonder for you, how would it feel to be received like this? Like the son was received. If you've done what that son did, how would it feel to be received back like that by the father? And this image, for a long time in my life, was foreign to me. Because the image I had was God kind of does the doghouse treatment. It's that I make a mess, he finds it, yells at me, rubs my nose in it, and kicks me out to the doghouse, and he'll invite me in later once he's calmed down. That was the image I had for a long time in my life. And perhaps that's the image you have. It's like, if I mess up, I better watch it. If God finds this, I'm getting kicked out, and I just got to wait a week or two before he's kind of calmed down. He'll open the slide and go to Come back in, but don't do that again. Oh. The doghouse treatment. And this picture in this story changed me. I've come back to it again and again and again. Feeling like when I mess up, when I've blown it, when I've hurt someone, when I've failed, what is God like? How does God respond to me? How does he retreat me when I come back to him? And what's it like to have him as my king? He's not sitting on the porch watching his son come and saying, Oh, this ought to be good. No. He runs out to him. He goes out to him. He can't even wait for his son to get back. He doesn't even talk about what he's done. All he does, he's just so happy he's there. And he rejoices and showers his affection on him. We also need to notice his son had a part. He came to himself. He came to his senses. He returns to the father. He confesses. He says, I'm undeserving. There's no entitlement. No excuses. No blaming. No hiding. No minimizing. No playing the victim. And he expects far less than what he actually gets from the father. And someone goes from lost, the son was lost, and became found. That's what the dad celebrated. You were lost, I thought you were lost, you were dead, but now you're found, you're alive. And he came from lost to found by repenting. And you think of repenting as a a U-turn. It's turning from the life you're living and turning to God. Turning from trusting in ourselves, trusting in worldly things to satisfy us, and turning to God to be the one who forgives us, who makes us right with him, who loves us, who can truly satisfy us with who he is, what he's like. And so I just wanted to capture today what we're talking about. Is when we come home to God, there's a big idea. God embraces us with lavishly abundant love. And we come home to God, and we have to come home. That's repentance. God embraces us with lavishly Abundant love. Love beyond our wildest dreams. And that embrace between this father and this son is something we all long for. I mean, to be loved by that, for a father, the father knows fully how bad this son messed up. And to be loved by that embrace and shot with affection, that embrace is what we all long for. We're often too afraid to risk getting it by showing who we really are to God and to other people. And so Jesus... Why are you hanging around sinners? Here's why. Because I'm seeking 
and saving the lost. These people, tax collectors and sinners, they're people who strayed away, and I'm seeking them to save them. They were lost. And God is overjoyed when one of them repents and turns back to him. But this story is about a father and his two sons. And so the next part of the story, the the older son comes back into the scene, uh, and we're told in verses 25 through 28. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So the older son's response to the father, angry and refuses to go in. And now we get the father's response to his older son's refusal, uh, picking back up in verse 28. It says, his father came out and entreated him. So the father father also goes out to his older son. He went out to the younger son, he goes out to his older son, and he wants him to come into the party. He's saying, please come in, son. I, I want you to be part of this. Uh, please come in and join the party. And then the older son gives a speech. The younger son has a speech. The older son gives a speech. Verse 29. But he was, or verse 28. But he was angry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. I slaved for you. I never disobeyed. And yet, even in spite of that, you never gave me a young goat to have a celebration with my friends. But now, in contrast, I've been here the whole time, faithful, you never gave me a goat, but now this son of yours doesn't even identify him, not my brother. He says, this son of yours, he comes back, and what do you do? You throw this big party for him. You celebrate that he's returned. And what did he do? He wasted all your property on reckless living, on prostitutes to get a little color of what he was doing when he was off and lost, which gives us even more contrast between he returned a man who wasted his father's property on prostitutes and his father came and embraced him still. So can you feel the anger of the older son? I just wonder, have you been there? I've been there. They don't deserve it. Why are they getting that? This is not fair. I've done all the right things. I've been praying, going to church. I've been doing all my stuff. And why do other people have the life that I want when they're just wasting it and they're not following God at all? I've been there. And the father's response to the older son's speech is in verses 31 through 32. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Basically, you never gave me a young goat in the father's head. The goat was always yours. You've always been here. Everything I have is mine. Everything of mine is yours. And it was fitting to celebrate and to be glad. Why? Because your son, your brother was dead. He brings it. This is your brother, not just a son of mine. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. And is found. And the story ends on a cliffhanger. Will he join the party? Or is he just going to remain outside, angry, refusing to go in, looking on from the outside? Is he going to join the party? And so the older son in this story are the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes that are complaining about who Jesus is hanging around with. You're having all this fun with all these 
younger sons, these people who have wasted their lives on reckless living, you're hanging out with them, and they're standing on the outside looking in, mad about who Jesus is hanging around with, refusing to go in, upset about what Jesus is doing for these losers who made a mess of their lives. And for me, I have a hard time relating to the younger son. Uh, I have a hard time relating to a life of reckless living. I'm the oldest. I grew up in church. I followed the rules. I got good grades. I was responsible. I didn't swear. I didn't smoke. I didn't party. I did all the things I'm supposed to do. And so I'm not familiar with reckless living. But I am familiar with a judgmental attitude, with looking down, with resentment, with anger, with bitterness, with comparing myself to other people. And when you say it like that, it's ugly, isn't it? It's just as bad as what the younger son did. It's another way to make a mess of your lives. And perhaps you can relate more to the older son than to the younger son. And the reality is that he was just as lost. He was the faithful son who stayed home, obedient, responsible, follows the rules, gets his work done. But while he was at home, he was lost at home. He was physically close to his father, but relationally far from his father. And he's, even his primary uh, thing that's making him angry isn't about what his brother did. His primary uh, source of anger is what his father did for his younger brother, who wasted all of his father's property on reckless living. And he cries for justice. Somebody has to pay for what he did. And the reality is that somebody has paid. The father already paid for it and welcomed him in. And he took the loss upon himself of what, of what his younger son did and brought him back home. And the older son does not love how freely, graciously, generously, and mercifully the father's love flows to his younger brother. And he doesn't love what his father is like. He's not saying, yes, that's my dad. That's what we do in this family. That's what my dad does. When we mess up, he welcomes us back. And he doesn't even talk about it. He's not proud of that. His heart is far from his father. He does not love what his father is like. And so we had a question earlier about how God responds. But another one would be, how does God respond when you're judgmental, angry, bitter, resentful, looking down on others? when you're sinful in a different way than the younger son. It's important to see that the father has the same love for the older son as he does for the younger son. He goes out. He wants him to come in. He says, son, you've always been with me. He calls him son. It's not like, if you can't join this party, like, fine, we're done. He's like, no, I want you to be in this party. I want you to enjoy it. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to save lost younger sons, to save lost older sons. And he tells this story to invite those older sons in, these Pharisees and scribes that are saying, what are you doing hanging out with all these losers? And he tells the story to say, are you going to get in on what God's doing? About how God's grace is opening up this kingdom for them to be a part of? Are you going to get in on it? I want you to get in. Are you going to repent? Are you going to turn from how you're trusting in your rules and your cleaned up life? And he's already challenged them. It's, you have all this stuff on the outside that makes you look better than other people, but on the inside there's this Death, your heart is far from God. And he says, are you going to get in sync with God's heart for you and for other people? And if you do, God will embrace you with lavishly abundant love. And so how does God respond to you when you come to him with your brokenness, your weakness, your neediness, your sinfulness, empty-handed, with nothing to offer but an apology? 
And the answer is the gospel. How he responds to us is the good news about what that Jesus came to announce, that he gave his life announcing that when messed up, broken people who've wronged God return to him with nothing in their hands to offer but an apology, God embraces them with lavishly abundant love. He brings them in with affection and love, and he throws a party, and that's the good news of Christianity. But that's how God responds to us when we come to him with all the junk we have in our lives, and we say, I've just messed up, God. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against other people by thought, word, and deed, by what I've done, what I've left undone. I've just messed it up. And what does he do? It's not like, yeah, I know. I'll let you work it off. Or, you know, get good, have a nice goodness streak for maybe a month or so, and then we can talk about it. It's like, no, come here. Son, I want to restore you. I forgive you. I love you. I welcome you. And good, it's the good news about what God is really like. And it, if this wasn't in the Bible, spoken by Jesus himself, I don't know if we'd believe it. It just sounds too radical, too wild, too crazy, too good to be true. And the thing is that if we don't think the gospel is too good to be true, we probably haven't really heard the true gospel, or we don't fully understand it yet, because it is too good to be true. And the good news was the heartbeat of behind Jesus' mission. It's the heartbeat of Good News Church, that we want to be people who are holding on to that good news of this is how God responds to us, this is how God treats us, this is what he's like, and this is the center, the heartbeat of what we're about. And we have some images, I just want to give a little quick tour of the room. These images we have in the room are meant to be, what is our image of God? Not just the words we're saying, but also what are the images, and you see on the, the left over here, uh, is the, the shepherd who left the 99 to find the one sheep and putting the sheep on his shoulders and bringing back. And the middle image is the prodigal son, the father running out to the son. And the far right is Jesus putting on the servant's clothes and getting down and washing his disciples' dirty, stinky feet hours before he's going to die for them. Like, you know, I don't know what you're like when you're about to die. If I was... I guess that was kind of a weird thing to say. But if I'm about to die, I'm not necessarily being like, yeah, I'm going to wash people's feet. Um, but so these three images uh, of this is what God is like. This is what Jesus is like. This is what he treats us, that he brings us back, that he embraces us, that he washes us clean. And of course, the cross over here that remember our congregation made, the same glass cross, is showing us the ultimate image of what God is like, of how God responds to our sinfulness. Is that he says, I'll die for you, that you can be free of that. So you come back to me with as white as snow, even though you are, are dirty with your sin. And Jesus, the cross shows us, Jesus is our obedient older brother who left home to take, the, take our place, to die in our place. He seeks and saves us by leaving home with the Father as the older brother to bring us back by taking our place. This is what God is like. This is the good news that this is how God responds to us when we come to him with nothing but an apology for what we've done. If this is something very new to you, that's like, I've never heard that before, or it's just hitting you in a new way, I invite you to talk to me after the service and we can talk about what does it look like to follow this type of God, to follow this type of person, to follow Jesus and to serve him as your king. Let's pray. Father, we just need help in every way, and especially to see you as you really are. We don't want to have images of you that are false, because we know 
We just want the real you. We want to see you as you are for all the goodness and all the grace and all the love and mercy you offer us. So Lord, would you make us a people who bring our junk to you, who bring our mess to you, our brokenness to you. Would you make us a people who are not afraid to do so and are afraid to let other people in on it because we know we're loved by you and embraced by you and so we don't need other people to approve of us. Lord, would you change us from the inside out with your good news. In your son's name we pray. Amen.